Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Lisa Von Moltke. She's the Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at Ceres Therapeutics. And the website is S-E-R-E-S-T-H-E-R-A-P-E-U-T-I-C-S.com. So Lisa, thanks for coming. Pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background and how you came to Ceres. And then after that, I'll ask you about Ceres itself. Sure. So I am a physician by training and uh, I uh, focused on internal medicine and a fellowship in clinical pharmacology, which is very interested in drug metabolism and transport. And I'll come back to that in a bit. I was an academic for quite some time in a university lab uh, before joining industry and particularly the biotech sector in the mid 2000s. Um, And since that time, I've worked at a number of small places and very large places and in a number of therapeutic areas. But I got the opportunity to investigate series just before the pandemic started. So late, late, what was it? 2019, early 2020. Mm -hmm. And um, as I, as I mentioned, I've always, you know, I've had an interest in drug metabolism We've known for a long time that there were uh, intestinal microbes down there doing all sorts of things, metabolizing things, uh, generating metabolites. Over the course of my pharmaceutical career, it was becoming really clear that the complexity and sophistication of the human microbiome was something that was not only much more important than we ever understood, but really an incredible determinant of health, disease, and and response to therapies. And I think 
one of the things that I was experiencing in, in my last job was just the, the information coming out of the oncology world on response to one of the new and most successful classes of drugs, the checkpoint inhibitors, being so tied to whether or not someone's microbiome had seen antibiotics. So in fact, the, the fact that your microbiome could be damaged or impaired in a way such that that affected your ability to respond to cancer chemotherapy was just an amazing piece of evidence that was resonating across medicine. So at the time when I had the chance to evaluate series on the backdrop of all this, this really intriguing work coming out of all sorts of fields, not the least of which is oncology, I was really amazed to see what series was bringing to bear in their approach to the microbiome. And by okay. that, I mean, I, yeah, the, you know, I had been aware that there had been some non-specific uh, attempts at innervation, most commonly referred to as fecal transplant, but series had been at it for 10 years and had actually been applying state-of-the-art kinds of approaches to identifying microorganisms and being able to classify them, genetically classify them, and even more importantly, to be able to determine their function, what these microbes were doing down there in terms of producing metabolites that are potentially important to the host, which are people, um, and also communicating with other uh, microbes that are that are in the microbiome. And so I thought if any company could potentially help move the field forward and unlock the potential, it is a company that is applying the same kind of scientific rigor that's being applied in other areas, the same sophisticated tools. And I said, sign me up. And what is your work in Ceres uh, comprised of now? Like, what are the focuses or the focuses of Ceres uh, Therapeutics? Yeah. Well, I'm the chief medical officer, which means that I'm on the clinical development side, and um, I take all that the the work that's gone into producing a therapy, and we put it into clinical trials. And in the same way, the there's been rigor in the science. We've been employing that same kind of rigor in the clinic by doing state-of-the-art kinds of clinical trials. So in other words, blinded, placebo-controlled, so we can get a really accurate look at uh, whether the therapies are doing what we want. And um, we've got a number of, of therapeutic areas we're interested in. The one that's furthest along is our therapy, the, the investigational therapy for C. difficile infection. And I can come back to that in a second and tell you more about that. We also have therapies that are underway in trials for ulcerative colitis, so a, a kind of inflammatory bowel disease. We have a therapy that's getting started in graft-versus-host disease and try to prevent infection in people undergoing bone marrow transplant. And the company is also very interested in doing work in metabolic areas. So really across a wide range of of therapeutic areas, which reflects really the the feeling in the medical field about all the potential places the microbiome may have a, a really significant role. Can we start with the C. difficile? What is the condition? You know, how does it arise? 
What does it do to people and what's your therapy targeting? Yeah. So C. difficile uh, infection is a, a, a kind of diarrhea, infectious diarrhea that is unique in its ability and likelihood of recurring. And these poor patients, once they get an episode, they're incredibly likely to get another episode and another episode and, and on and on. It is caused by an initial insult to the patient's microbiome, the most common one being some kind of broad spectrum antibiotic that a patient needs for something, whether it's a dental problem or cellulitis or pneumonia, something, you know, something where they they need to be treated. But that antibiotic, in addition to killing the bugs that are causing problem, we now know that they also those antibiotics can cause damage to those healthy bacteria, those good bacteria, if you will, those microbiome players in the GI tract that are important for doing all sorts of things that keep us healthy. And one of the things they do is they outcompete bad bacteria, if you will, by using up the food and the space and all of that. They produce certain kinds of chemicals that uh, make it very difficult for bad bacteria to grow. And um, so when we, when we lose those good bacteria, suddenly there's space for bad bacteria and C. diff is one of them. There's not this chemical protection that the good bacteria normally produce. So as a result of that, the patients then will be treated for the C. diff infection, but there's a bit of a residual nidus, if you will. It's actually a spore, it's not the vegetative bacteria, but it's, as I, and I realize this is a fine distinction, but it's a very resilient piece of the puzzle for C. diff that remains that if that healthy microbiome were there, would be able to keep that spore from generating and causing the C. diff infection again. But because it's not there, the C. diff explodes, the patients develop incredibly profuse diarrhea. Many of them are hospitalized and they go through this cycle of antibiotic treatment and recurrence for some of them a number of times. So what SEER 109, our our investigational therapy for C. diff does, is it comes along in after the patients had antibiotics the first time from the C. diff or the, you know, for the, the C. diff infection and quickly delivers, delivers back the good bacteria that patients need to have in their intestine. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. And it's a particular kind of, of bacteria called the firmicutes. And those bacteria then bloom and go back to occupying their rightful place in the GI tract. And they not only occupy that space, they produce the kind of chemical environment that is normal and healthy 
and keeps C. diff from being able to germinate again. Don't people have some low level of C. diff in them at all times? And I guess it just increases dramatically when it when it takes over? That is a very good question because or a very good point. There are a fair number of people who are either carriers, asymptomatic carriers, or we sometimes call them colonized if they're if they're carrying a large amount. But the reason that they don't, they're carrying the spores. And the reason that that's not a problem is because the rest of their microbiome is doing all the things we just discussed. It is competing for nutrients and space. It is producing these secondary bile acids, which C. diff doesn't like. And as a result, those spores stay just that, spores, and and don't cause problems. It's when that environment is changed. And again, the most common cause of that is a broad spectrum antibiotic. When those the, that microbiome environment is changed, that suddenly, aha, the spores now have a window of opportunity during that time where they can now germinate. And that is exactly what happens. There's C. diff is a is a common organism in the environment. And it's a resilient, healthy microbiome that is responsible for the fact that we're not all running around um, having C. diff and diarrhea all the time. So the uh, Firmicutes, they they produce metabolites we need, but they also produce, uh, you know, I guess, metabolites that dampen the activity of C. diff. Is that what happens? Like, what's their interaction with, with C. diff? Yeah, the, the main the main mechanistic sort of underpinnings, if you will, are, are just what I uh, described, which is the conversion of primary to secondary bile acids, which actually inhibit the growth and the, the germination of the C. diff spores. So that is a that is a key thing that a key function of the firmicutes in terms of what they do. We also know that they do compete for carbon sources. And, and just other resources that make it difficult for any little vegetative thing that might slip through, just finding a, a, a very inhospitable environment. Okay. So the protocol is to give probiotics or, you know, how, how do you help restore this balance and knock out the C. diff? Is it, again, antibiotics yes. coupled with probiotics? Like what's the protocol? Yeah, it's, well, it's the antibiotics because once the, once the patients are in the throes of diarrhea, that's because they've, the pores have already germinated, horses out of the barn, if you will. The, the vet, they're now not spores, they're vegetative, growing, and they're producing toxin, and the toxins was what, is what makes people sick. So we come back in with a state of standard of care, antibiotics, knock those vegetative bacteria back down. Now, antibiotics don't do anything to spores. So we're back down to the spore state, and the spores are sitting there, we enter in with SEER 109, which is a, is a consortia of these uh, firmicute spores themselves. We administer, and those are orally, for three days, and they engraft, those spores engraft and bloom and vegetate and produce the, the intestinal flora, the intestinal bacteria that is more commonly in healthy people and produce those environmental pressures that we just dis- discussed. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So I, I okay. would say that it's not really a probiotic in the sense that most people mean probiotic. It's maybe a subtle difference, but it's a 
it's a microbiome therapy. Yeah, that makes sense. So what other, when, okay, when you do this and so you're left with, uh, when you take the antibiotics, it kills a whole bunch of C. diff, but it leaves the spores. Are there any side effects from that, you know, from the mass die off of C. diff, do they release toxins? And then when you have these, uh, these spores are all that's left. And then you add in the vermiculite spores. Again, is there another die off of the other spores? Like what happens to them? How do they passage out of the body and does that cause any other problems for people? Yeah, those are great questions. I, the, um, the dying off doesn't seem to be any, any more problematic than just the toxin production. I mean, their C. diff is going great guns producing toxin when left to its own devices. So coming in with the antibiotics to knock that down and kill the vegetative uh, bacteria, actually people respond and get symptomatic relief pretty quickly, which is really, it is really reassuring to see. And, and so antibiotics really do work to control that initial diarrhea. And then with regard to the second question, well, what we saw in our study is that patients really don't have any problem in terms of anything that happens with administration of the new spores, if you will. What we do know is that after patients have had C. diff, they will shed C. diff spores for some time. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that there is a recommendation you don't go checking to see if somebody is now C. diff negative in terms of uh, just a, a, a PCR test or something like that after you've treated, because you'll pick up that they're still excreting spores, even though they're no longer uh, having active diarrhea and, and symptomatic but they feel much better. So they feel back to normal, even though they may be still uh, shedding some spores. So it really is a, it's the completion of the therapeutic cycle, if you will, piece that has been missing for so long with this, with this particular illness. And it really was an, an amazing result that came out of the, the trial last summer, certainly a more pronounced result than we or really folks in the field had even expected and very gratifying for the, the, the patients since it looks like there's something that can help them get back to health. Yeah, that's excellent. You know, I know we can't talk about everything that series is doing, but can you talk about one more product that you're very excited about? And we'll ask a few questions around that. Sure. Well, I think the next thing that's up in the pipeline is the our therapy that's in the, a phase 2B study for ulcerative colitis. And um, that's an uh, inflammatory bowel disease and affects an awful lot of folks uh, around the world and is actually a, a growing problem for reasons that are not quite clear, but maybe tied potentially to the spread of the Western diet, among other things. And um, this investigational therapy is particularly now in studies for patients with mild to moderate ulcerative colitis. And that's a that's the biggest group of patients with ulcerative colitis. And they're a group of patients who very often are undertreated. And that's because the current treatments that are available for the most part are global immunosuppressants. So patients have to make a decision about whether to take some of their medication options to feel better and weigh that against 
opportunistic infections, increased risks of neoplasia and uh, omas. And in some of the other therapies, they've got their own uh, cardiovascular toxicity. So really significant toxicities. So for these patients who are more mildly affected, they still may be having five bowel movements a day. They may be bleeding when they go to the bathroom. They may have uh, continued urgency that feels like they have to run to the bathroom or it wakes them up in the middle of the night. But they may think, well, maybe I can, you know, maybe I can tolerate just half the number of trips to the bathroom or uh, maybe only getting up once in the night rather than take something that I'm afraid is going to result in my getting lymphoma or skin cancer or, or something like that. So the field, this, this group of patients is really in need of something that could give them some benefit without that kind of baggage. And one thing about the microbiome therapies that we've seen at series is because maybe that because they're mental bacteria that have evolved with us over centuries, they really don't have a toxicity profile that's of any significance. Uh, one of the things that we saw even in the C. diff program is that the adverse event profile looked identical to placebo. And in fact, in the ulcerative colitis programs, in our earliest program, the AE profile looked better in the treatment group. And the things that occur tend to be gas or a little GI cramping, something like that. So it's really presented the opportunity to potentially intervene in this disease, in ulcerative colitis, in the, for this mild to moderate group, which is definitely undertreated and is not willing very often to take the next therapeutic step unless they can have something that they feel has a better risk benefit profile. And I'll, I'll also say that the, the microbiome approach here offers another unique feature in addition to the safety profile. For a disease like ulcerative colitis, the, the, the sense is, is that it's a, it's a heterogeneous and probably multifactorial uh, disease, an interplay of, of, of a number of factors resulting in a lot of excess inflammation directed at the host and then the sequelae that we see with the, the damage to the intestinal lining and the symptoms that we just talked about, uh, but also increased risk for colon cancer um, as a result of the ongoing inflammation. So we know that there are likely multiple, multiple pathways that could be implicated and potentially different pathways in different people. So by using a microbiome approach, and, and again, looking at the function of the bacteria that we're choosing, the function, the abilities of these bacteria spe bacterial species to form metabolites and substances that are anti-inflammatory, that promote mucin production and barrier integrity in, in cells, that do other things that are immunomodulary at a local level, we can deliver a therapy that has the potential to hit a number of pathways simultaneously in a way that you can't do with a directed therapy, right? If you have, you're going after one cytokine or, you know, cytokine oid factor, that's a very precise directed therapy, but it, for a multifactorial disease, that may leave some gaps. And 
because the therapies that are available have these significant toxicities, it's been pretty difficult to combine therapies. There is a little bit of that that's done with the, you know, in the early lines of therapy, but it becomes problematic pretty quickly, just again, because of these compounded toxicities. So in addition to microbiome therapies, potentially allowing us to go after multiple targets at once. If they stay looking as safe as they have been, you could imagine that they could also be used in combination with some of the other bigger guns that uh, you wouldn't want to add significant toxicities to. So we're really excited about that. It it sounds like, um, I guess, C. difficile is understood a lot better so far than ulcerative colitis. You said it's, you know, it's likely multifactorial, but is there any insight into, I guess, specifically the microbiome angle, what's happening in people with this ulcerative colitis? Like, would, are there certain microbial players that are increased or decreased? Any knowledge there? Yeah, so that those are absolutely fantastic questions. And you are spot on that the C. diff, uh, while it was not an easy nut to crack, it was a much more straightforward microbiome play, if you will. With regard to the, to the pathogenesis and the, the bacterial players and the pathogenesis of ulcerative colitis, it's it's not really thought to be something that's pathogen-driven kind of thing. So we can't we can't really go after uh, a specific player like you go after in C. diff uh, that we know is the bad actor. What we're aiming to do is to go in and produce things like short-chain fatty acids, tryptophan metabolites, um, things that we know are important in indole production, and things that we've been able to look at in the lab and in, and in models and then get some kind of human confirmatory evidence that suggests that by, uh, by augmenting the function of those kinds of capabilities that we can actually do things like help with the healing of the mucosal surface, reduce the inflammation and some of the inflammatory signals that are happening at a a local level. So it's really, again, more around the function. And that's also interesting because we and others have seen that different people might have different bugs doing that function. So you may have a drug uh, bug A who can perform these num- these really important functions. Somebody else might have bug M that can perform those very infun- important functions. So it's not so much that we think people need to have the identical microbiomes with identical bugs. They need to have these functions. And some of our therapies, including our therapy for ulcerative colitis, have redundancies built in so that we may be supplying more than one bug that can produce the function, these needed functions with the best shot of having the right bug that is fit, fitting in your ecosystem take root and produce those functions. So it's a, it's a complicated social environment within the, these microbiome spheres. And uh, there's not going to be one definition of healthy in terms of who's there, but in terms of what they're doing, there does seem to be uh, some common thread. Yeah, it seems like uh, our microbiomes are like a job center 
So as you said, you know, if microbe A could do the job, sometimes micro B for me or micro C for someone else. So it's, I guess there's, I guess it makes sense that there's that redundancy. It helps keep us going and uh, ensure that there's not just one type of bacteria that can help us. Yep. That's a, that's a really great analogy. Do you have any sense of, I call it like bacterial economics. So if I'm a bacteria and I produce a certain metabolite, you know, how many of those metabolite molecules do I produce in exchange for how many, let's say, sugar molecules that, you know, the body gives me or short chain fatty acid molecules or whatever, some other metabolite? Do you, does anyone have a sense of, you know, what the parameters are on the trading of these metabolites? Yeah. So that's a, that's an excellent question. I am not the person to answer that, but the reason, one of the things that attracted me to Ceres is that we have a bunch of people working in our discovery group who actually are the right people to answer that. And that those are exactly the kinds of, of um, questions that they've been asking and the kind of work that they've been doing for 10 years, which is why they've got a, um, an understanding of, as I said, not only who's down there, but what they're doing and what kind of conditions they need in order to do their work. And that's what the depth that I think is really special about the organization. Okay, well, very good. Best way for people to keep tabs, go to seriestherapeutics.com or what's your recommendation? How can they find out more? Yeah, I think that's the that's a great way to start. And I'm pretty sure we have social media presence as well uh, for those who are more uh, facile with social media than I am. Um, but definitely our website keeps people informed. Okay, very good. And then uh, last question, what's in the pipeline for the next year versus the next five years? You know, if you can say it, if you can, it's okay. But um, what can people expect to see clinically? You know, what clinical solutions are coming and when do you see? Yeah, I, I've given you a little bit of a, of a glimpse in terms of inflammatory bowel disease and our, our work in um, graft versus hosts. We remain also incredibly interested in oncology and uh, all aspects, including immuno-oncology and anything related to immunomodulation, as you can imagine from just the topics we've discovered are, are right in our sweet spot. But I would say the other thing, spent a lot of time thinking about and is a, a really critical problem for all of us, the healthcare system, um, is, is resistant bacteria. And um, our ability, the, the ability of the microbiome to help control infections that are uh, increasingly produced by resistant organisms. So as what are known as the escape pathogens. And so I think you can look to a uh, series to, to continue to be interested in, in working in that area as well. Well, very good. Well, Lisa, thank you for coming on the podcast and talking about series. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.